is the Banshee, the ancient Irish herald of death, merely the stuff of legend? Or could the Banshee actually exist? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. With the exception of the leprechaun, Perhaps the most well-known of Ireland's supernatural legends is that of the Banshee, a wailing woman whose cry is said to foretell the death of members of certain ancient Irish families. As D.R. McAnally put it in his book Irish Wonders, the Banshee attends only the old families, and though their descendants, through misfortune, may be brought down from high estate to ranks of peasant farmers, she never leaves, nor forgets them, till the last member has been gathered to his fathers in the churchyard. Although all Banshees seem to share a single purpose, their appearance and the manner of their manifestation can vary significantly from family to family. The banshee attendant to some families may be an ethereally beautiful woman. In the words of the early 20th century ghost hunter Elliot O'Donnell, women with long, luxuriant tresses, either of raven black or burnished copper or brilliant gold, and whose star-like eyes full of tender pity, are either dark and tearful, or of the most exquisite blue or gray. However, the banshee attendant to some families may be described as the malevolent banshee. In McElnally's words, a horrible hag with ugly, distorted features, maledictions are written in every line of her wrinkled face and her outstretched arms call down curses on the doomed member of the hated race. And then there are some families which are haunted by both a beautiful and a malevolent banshee. Although the banshee usually manifests itself through a terrifying wailing, it is often accompanied by a clapping of hands similar to what is seen in the Irish tradition of keening at the time of a death and at funerals. Sometimes, however, the banshee is only seen and not heard, and in some ancient Irish tales she has been described as being seen washing human heads, severed limbs, and bloody clothing on the eve of a battle. Elliot O'Donnell's family was haunted by a particularly unique and frightening banshee, as described by his sister, Petronella. I remember vividly, she writes, my first experience of our banshee. I had never heard of it at the time, and in fact, 
I have only heard of it in recent years. It happened one day that I went into the hall in the daytime, I forget the exact hour, and as I climbed the stairway, being yet a small child, I happened to look up. There, looking over the rails at the top of the stairway, was an object so horrible that I shudder when I think of it even now. In a greenish halo of light, the most terrible head imagination could paint was looking at me with apparently fiendish fire in its light and leering eyes. The head was neither man nor woman's. It was ages old. It might have been buried and dug up again. It was so skull-like and shrunken. Its pallor was horrible, gray and mildewy. Its hair was long. Its mouth leered, and its light and cruel eyes seemed determined to hurt me to the utmost with the terror it inspired. I remember how my childish heart rebelled against its cowardice in trying to hurt and frighten so small a child. Gazing back at it in petrified horror, I slowly returned to the room I had come from. I resolved to never tell anyone about it. One evening, when I was grown up, we were sitting round the fire with friends, and someone said, I don't believe in ghosts. Have you ever met anyone who has seen one? I have not. A sudden impulse came over me. Never to that moment had I ever mentioned the head. And leaning forward, I said, I have seen a ghost. I saw the most terrible head when I was a child, looking over the staircase. To my astonishment, my sister, who was sitting near me, said, I saw a most terrible head, too, looking over the staircase. I said, When did you see it? I saw it when our father died. And she said, And I saw it when our mother died. In describing it, we found all the details agreed and learned not long after that it was without doubt our own banshee we had seen. Still, however, it is far more common for a banshee to be heard or both heard and seen than to be merely seen. In the course of my travels through Ireland, I have had the good fortune to meet both a credible young woman who told me of her mother hearing the cry of the banshee just prior to the death of her brother, and a gentleman who told me of hearing a banshee on two separate occasions prior to a death in his family. In the case of his family's banshee, he told me, You hear the banshee three times. First you hear it faintly far off in the distance. Next you hear it loud and close to you, and you feel its presence as it passes through your body. Then you hear it the third time, fading in intensity as it journeys off behind you. 
An experience similar to that of my informant was collected from a first-hand witness residing in the west of Ireland by Lady Gregory, the tireless collector of Irish lore and friend of William Butler Yeats. I heard the banshee and saw her, the man stated. I and six others were card-playing in the kitchen at the big house. When I saw her up outside the window, she had a white dress, and it was as if held over her face. They all looked up and saw it, and they were all afraid and went back but myself. Then I heard a cry that did not seem to come from her, but from a good way off, and then it seemed to come from her. She made no attempt to twist the mournful cry, but it was as mournful as the oldest of the old women could make it that was the best at crying the dead. Old Mr. Shonick was at Listavarna at the time, and he came home a few days after and took to bed and died. It is always the banshee has followed the Shonicks and cried them. One of the earliest verifiable accounts of the Banshee was recorded by Lady Anne Fanshawe in her memoirs. In 1642, she and her husband, Sir Richard, were visiting Lady Honora O'Brien at her castle in Ireland. Sometime between midnight and one in the morning, Lady Fanshawe was awakened by a horrifying and unearthly scream. Pulling back the curtains from her bed, she saw a young woman staring at her through a window situated high above the castle moat. Due to the strength of the moon that night, Lady Fanshawe was able to clearly perceive every detail of the apparition. Her extremely pale face, her long reddish disheveled and flowing hair, and her dress of ancient Irish design. As Lady Fanshawe would later record, the spirit spake loud, and in a tone I never heard, thrice, a horn, and then with a sigh, more like wind than breath, she vanished, and to me her body looked more like a thick cloud than substance. I was so much affrighted that my hair stood on end and my nightclothes fell off. She pulled and pinched her husband, who, as she later recalled, never awakened during this discord I was in, but at last was much surprised to find me in this fright, and more when I related the story and showed him the window opened but he entertained me with telling how much more these apparitions were usual in that country than in England. The next morning, their host mentioned that around two in the morning, a cousin of Lady Honora had died in the castle, and she hoped that Lady Fanshawe had not in any way been disturbed. When Lady Fanshawe disclosed how she had been very much disturbed indeed, Lady Honora explained, We disguised our certain expectation of the event from you, 
lest it should throw a cloud over the cheerful reception which was your due. Now before such an event happens in this family or castle, the female spectre whom you have seen is always visible. She is believed to be the spirit of a woman of inferior rank whom one of my ancestors degraded himself by marrying and whom afterwards, to expiate the dishonor done to his family, he caused to be drowned in the moat. But truly, she apologized, I had not thought of it when I lodged you here. A contributor to St. John D. Seymour and Harry L. Nelligan's True Irish Ghost Stories wrote, My mother, when a young girl, was standing looking out the window in their house at Black Rock near Cork. She suddenly saw a white figure standing on a bridge which was easily visible from the house. The figure waved her arms toward the house, and my mother heard the bitter wailing of the banshee. It lasted some seconds, and then the figure disappeared. The next morning, my grandfather was walking as usual in the city of Cork. He accidentally fell, hit his head against a curbstone, and never recovered consciousness. Another of their informants reported a case of a group of children who, while out for a walk one evening, passed the gate of an important member of the local gentry. Sitting upon a rock near the gate was a small, dark old woman who began to cry and clap her hands as if keening for the dead. Although some of the children attempted to speak to the woman, they quickly became frightened and ran home. The next day, they learned that the gentleman whose property lay just beyond the gate had died at the very hour the children had seen the old woman. The fact that many Irish families have relocated throughout the world presents no impediments to the banshee, as the following incident illustrates. A guest enjoying a party on a yacht sailing a lake in Italy asked his host, a count, Who is that very strange-looking woman you have on board? There is no woman here other than the ladies you've already met and the stewardesses, answered the count. No, you're wrong, count, the guest replied. Then, without warning, the strange woman appeared before him. Oh, my God, what a face, the man screamed, covering his face with his hands. When finally he found the courage to look up again, the vision mercifully had vanished. Thank heavens it's gone, he exclaimed. What was it, the Count asked. Nothing human, the man answered in a halting manner. Nothing belonging to this world. It was a woman of no earthly type with a queer-shaped, gleaming face, a mass of red hair, and eyes that would have been beautiful but for their expression, which was hellish. She had on a green hood, after the fashion of an Irish peasant. Perhaps you saw the banshee, suggested an American guest, a lady who was familiar with the description. To this the Count replied, 
I am an O'Neill, at least I'm descended from one. My family is, as you know, Nelsini, which, a little more than a century ago, was O'Neill. My great-grandfather served in the Irish Brigade, and on its dissolution at the time of the French Revolution, had the good fortune to escape the general massacre of the officers, and, in company with an O'Brien and a Maguire, fled across the frontier and settled in Italy. On his death, his son, who had been born in Italy and was far more Italian than Irish, changed his name to Nilsini, by which name the family has been known ever since. But for all that, we are Irish. The banshee was yours then, responded the guest. What exactly does it mean? It means, the Count replied in a grave tone, the death of someone very nearly associated with me. Pray heaven, it is not my wife or daughter. His wish was to be granted, for only a few hours later, it was the Count himself who suffered a severe attack of angina and died before the sun rose upon the next morning. Although I could easily go on much longer with similar true stories, I shall leave you with the following account chronicled for posterity by T. Crofton Croker, which, strange as it might seem, was verified both by contemporary witnesses and letters written at the time and preserved by the family involved. Charles McCarthy was, by all accounts, a rich young man, unencumbered by parental restrictions, who led a life of debauchery and dissipation, and in the year 1749, following his 24th birthday, and what was, even by his standards, a week of excess, Charles was stricken by a violent fever and fell into a coma from which it was believed he would never awaken. After the doctor had pronounced the dreaded words, it's all over, lamentations of the women present filled the air until later that night the lamentations gave way to the eerie stillness of morning and the planning of the wake. It was then that a slight murmur issued from Charles' lips, and to the astonishment of all present, he sat up in his deathbed, he had a strange tale to tell, saying that he had found himself standing before the Creator, who, due to pleading on his behalf by his patron saint, had given him a second chance. He claimed to have heard from the mouth of God these words, Return to that world in which thou hast lived, but to outrage the laws of him who made the world and thee. Three years are given thee for repentance. When these are ended, thou shalt again stand here, to be saved or lost forever. Whether Charles McCarthy had indeed stood before God and been given a reprieve, or this was merely an hallucination produced by a fevered brain and a guilty conscience, we will never know. But it is recorded 
that he eagerly embraced a life in which he became religious without ostentation and temperate without austerity, giving a practical proof that vice may be exchanged for virtue without a loss of respectability, popularity, or happiness. As he approached the third anniversary of his delivery from death, many had either forgotten the prediction or scoffed at such things. But Charles' mother was frightened and wrote to a dear friend, Mary Berry, who lived at Berry Castle, fifty miles away from Springhouse, the McCarthy's home. My dearest Mary, I am afraid that I am going to put your affection for your old friend and kinswoman to a severe trial. A two-day's journey at this season over bad roads and through a troubled country, it will indeed require friendship such as yours to persuade a sober woman to encounter. But the truth is, I have, or fancy I have, more than usual cause for wishing you near me. You know my son's story. I can't tell how it is, but as next Sunday approaches, when the prediction of his dream or his vision will be proved false or true, I feel a sickening of the heart which I cannot suppress, but which your presence, my dear Mary, will soften, as it has done so many of my sorrows. My nephew James Ryan is to be married to Jane Osborne, who you know is my son's ward, and the bridal entertainment will take place here on Sunday next, though Charles pleaded hard to have it postponed a day or two longer. Would to God, but no more of this till we meet. Do prevail upon yourself to leave your good man for one week, if his farming concerns will not admit of his accompanying you, and come with us with the girls as soon before Sunday as you can. Due to her having to make many arrangements for the fulfillment of her domestic responsibilities during her absence, Mrs. Berry and her two youngest daughters were not able to leave until late Friday morning. Her eldest daughter remained at home to keep her father company and to attend to any domestic issues which might come up. Traveling in an open, horse-drawn jaunting car, driven by their man Leary, over bad roads made even worse by heavy October rains, they were able to make less than twenty miles the first day, stopping at the home of friends, the Borks, that night to sleep. What happened next? we learn from a later letter written by Mary's youngest daughter from Spring Hill. The Borks kept us up so late on Friday night that yesterday was pretty far advanced before we could begin our journey, and the day closed when we were nearly 15 miles distance from this place. The roads were excessively deep from the heavy rains of the last week and we proceeded so slowly that at last my mother resolved on passing the night at the house of Mr. Bork's brother, who lives about a quarter of a mile off the road, and coming here to breakfast in the morning. The day had been windy and showery, and the sky looked fitful, gloomy, and uncertain. The moon was full, and at times shone clear and bright, 
At others, it was wholly concealed behind the thick, black, rugged masses of clouds that rolled rapidly along and were every moment becoming larger and collecting together as if gathering strength for a coming storm. The wind, which blew in our faces, whistled bleakly along the low hedges of the narrow road on which we proceeded with difficulty from the number of deep sloughs which afforded not the least shelter, no plantation being within some miles of us. My mother therefore asked Leary, who drove the jaunting car, how far we were from Mr. Bork's. "'Tis about ten spades from this to the cross, "'and we have then only to turn the left into the avenue, mum. "'Very well, Leary. "'Turn up to Mr. Bork's as soon as you reach the crossroads.' "'My mother had scarcely spoken these words "'when a shriek that made us thrill as if our very hearts were pierced by it "'burst from the hedge to the right of our way.' If it resembled anything earthly, it seemed the cry of a female struck by a sudden and mortal blow, and giving out her life in one long, deep pang of expiring agony. "'Heaven defend us!' exclaimed my mother. "'Go you over the hedge, Leary, and save that woman, if she's not yet dead, while we run back to the hut we just passed, and alarm the village near it.' "'Woman!' said Larry, beating his horse violently while his voice trembled. That's no woman. The sooner we get on, mum, the better. And he continued his efforts to quicken the horse's pace. We saw nothing. The moon was hid. It was quite dark, and we had been for some time expecting a heavy fall of rain. But just as Leary had spoken and had succeeded in making the horse trot briskly forward, we distinctly heard a loud clapping of hands, followed by a succession of screams that seemed to denote the last excess of despair and anguish, and to issue from a person running forward inside the hedge to keep pace with our progress. Still we saw nothing until when we were within about ten yards of the place where an avenue branched off to Mr. Bork's on the left, and the road turned to Spring House on the right. The moon started suddenly from behind a cloud and enabled us to see as plainly as I now see this paper the figure of a tall, thin woman with uncovered head and long hair flowing round her shoulders, attired in something which seemed either a loose white cloak or a sheet thrown hastily about her. She stood on the corner hedge where the road on which we were met that which leads to Spring House, with her face towards us, her left hand pointing to this place, and her right arm waving rapidly and violently as if to draw us on in that direction. The horse had stopped, apparently frightened at the sudden presence of the figure which stood in the manner I have described, still uttering the same piercing cries for about half a minute. It then leaped upon the road, disappeared from our view for one instant, and the next was seen standing upon a high wall a little way up the avenue, on which we proposed going, still pointing towards the road to Springhouse, 
but in an attitude of defiance and command, as if prepared to oppose our passage up the avenue. The figure was now quite silent, and its garments, which had before flown loosely in the wind, were closely wrapped around it. Go on, Leary, to Spring House, in God's name, said my mother. Whatever world it belongs to, we will provoke it no longer. Tis the banshee, mum, said Leary, and I would not for what my life is worth go anywhere this blessed night but to Spring House. But I'm afraid there's something going bad forward, or she would not send us there. So saying, he drove forward, and as we turned on the road to the right, the moon suddenly withdrew its light, and we saw the apparition no more. But we heard plainly a prolonged clapping of hands, gradually dying away, as if it issued from a person rapidly retreating. We proceeded as quickly as the badness of the roads and the fatigue of the poor animal that drew us would allow, and arrived here about eleven o'clock last night. When the berries arrived at Spring House, a terrible scene awaited them. On the previous Tuesday, after Mrs. McCarthy had already sent her letter to Mrs. Berry, Charles McCarthy had been out walking with the engaged couple, Jane Osborne and James Ryan, when a pistol shot rang out from within the shrubbery. The assailant, a distraught young woman whom James Ryan had seduced with a promise of marriage, but had abandoned some months before, had aimed her pistol at Ryan, but instead the lead shot struck Charles in the leg. Due to incompetent medical care, what had initially been thought to be merely a flesh wound of little consequence had taken a turn, and Charles was lying upon his deathbed. The berries were taken to Charles' bedroom, where, as Miss Berry was to record in her letter, he wished to devote the last hours of his existence to uninterrupted prayer and meditation. We found him perfectly calm, resigned, and even cheerful. He spoke of the awful event which was at hand with courage and confidence, and treated it as a doom for which he had been preparing ever since his formal remarkable illness, and which he never once doubted was truly foretold to him. He bade us farewell with the air of one who was about to travel a short and easy journey and we left him with impressions which, notwithstanding all their anguish, will, I trust, never entirely forsake us. In the words of T. Crofton Croker, before the sun had gone down upon Charles' seven-and-twentieth birthday, his soul had gone to render its last account to its creator. <laughs> This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. 
Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Windwhistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon and The Young Ghost Hunter's Handbook by Mark Lyon.